Photo Shelter presents Vision Slightly Blurred. I'm Alan Murabayashi. And I'm Sarah Jacobs. Sarah, the photographer Joe McNally is about to release a brand new book on February 8th entitled The Real Deal, Field Notes from the Life of a Working Photographer. He was kind enough to send me an advance copy of the book, which I read in like a day, Uh, even though it's 378 pages. It was such a quick read. He's such a great writer and had so many interesting and quirky anecdotes about his life as being a freelancer for the past 40 years. And then he consented to being interviewed. So we have an interview up on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. And, uh, you know, it was it was fun to interview him as a follow up to a lot of his little stories that he had. I think the book is fantastic. I think it should be a required reading for any freelancers out there because he's very, very honest about recounting kind of the ups and downs of being in the freelance business for so long. Did you get a chance to read that interview at all? I did, yeah. And I'm super excited about the book. I was struck by the interview, how many examples he did give of basically kind of up. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought it was really refreshing to hear about a little bit about some of those stories. And especially, I think that's a really good reminder to like young freelance photographers out there that like you can screw up, bad things might happen, but like you can bounce back from that and still build an incredible career for yourself if you, if the talent is there, if you learn from those mistakes, et cetera. There's so much curation around the way that people present themselves, obviously online and through social media, even with photographers who are trying to build audiences. And to your point, I was really struck by the fact that he talks so much about failure in the book. And Mm -hmm. uh, one of the business anecdotes that he talked about in the book that kind of surprised me was a photo shoot that he did with the businessman Phil Sokoloff. And in the book, he describes being hired by Time magazine to take photos that Sokolov ended up really liking and he wanted copies of. Joe tried to negotiate a high fee because the guy was wealthy and Time Magazine wanted him to come down and just kind of do it as a favor. Um, And he didn't relent. Mm. And he says in the book that he ended up jeopardizing his relationship with both Time Magazine and with Sokolov. And I pushed back in the interview because I, I said, you know, one of the obvious benefits of being a freelancer where it's not a work for hire arrangement is that you can monetize your intellectual property for a lot of money down the line. Right. But Joe wrote in the book, and he sort of reiterated to me during the interview, that, quote, the house always wins. And he said you can try to (laughs) maximize profit while ruining a relationship. And you basically have to decide whether it's worth it in the long term. The advice struck me as being something that illustrates how situational each negotiation can become. Because if you if you talk to someone like Todd Bigelow, you know, who's written a book about business of photography, et cetera, I think the the straight and narrow, like if if a gun was put to your head, what would you say? You would say you try to negotiate the biggest fee as possible. But I think when you're coming down to the fact that you have a relationship with a magazine and a relationship with an editor and a future possibility of being hired by a client, you really have to make these more subtle decisions. And that, you know, that sort of nuance really came through to me with every anecdote in the book. Yeah, I really liked reading that part of the interview. It's really clear that Joe kind of understands these 
I would call them almost like office politics, right? Of kind of, like you said, yeah. understanding when to push back or, or knowing that the house always wins. I mean, those are things, those are lessons that people that work in a nine to five, you know, going to an office every day, they kind of get, you kind of learn over the course of your career. And it seemed, and Joe is just, it, it shows his smarts of kind of understanding that from a freelancer perspective, kind of working on his own, you know, on an island, so to speak. It's like, he gets it. And I think it's a really, really important lesson for younger photographers. Great book. Joe McNally's The Real Deal will be published on February 8th, 2022. I came across an article in Wired entitled, Are You Sure You Know What a Photograph Is? It was a bit of a think piece about the meaning of photography. The author, Rashed Hawk, opens up the piece by revealing that there are no photos of him before he was eight years old. He grew up in, in Bangladesh and then immigrated to the U.S. He's an artist and AI engineer. And in this piece, he writes about challenging the notion of what constitutes photography. Of course, we're all familiar with the visible light spectrum uh, type of photography using film or digital. But he brings up a few examples of Richard Moss's heat maps, infrared project of the refugee crisis, and how infrared doesn't pick up the detail in a face so everybody looks sort of nameless in the way that I think a lot of people view refugees. He brings up Robert Dash's electron microscope composites. Uh, he brings up that very celebrated first, you know, quote, photo of a black hole that, that took years and terabytes of data to, to compile together. And then he talks a bit about uh, GANs, generative adversarial network images that make those really creepy photos of people who've never existed before. It's a thought piece for sure. And I generally mm. agree with his, you know, pretty expansive definition of photography. He does say, quote, the recent popularity of NFTs may be an early indication that digital display may be the dominant form of, quote, printing over time. I thought this was a kind of a curious and somewhat silly statement. Digital display is already the dominant form of consumption and to me, the notion that the NFT is the print in the digital realm is weird because there's nothing visually distinctive about an NFT in the way that every print can be slightly different depending on you know the operator who's doing the printing. The uniqueness of the NFT is really just about its place in the blockchain. It's not visually different than any other digital copy that you might find online. What was your thought about the NFT and the piece in general? Oh, well, that, I mean, it was, it's interesting to hear you say that. I didn't think about like each print being slightly very, you know, different. I from, mean, not necessarily true when you're just cranking out digital prints, but certainly in the, sure. in the film world, it, that was true. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I didn't think about that. And I think that's a good point. To be honest, this article went like a little bit over my head. It kind of bent, <laughs> bent my mind a little bit, but I actually, I actually thought that that what he said about NFTs was kind of like a helpful interpretation for me to better understand them kind of by comparing them to printing. He sort of nods to the ownership of an NFT um, in the same way that somebody might own a print. That, that was kind of my interpretation hmm, of that hmm, sentence. Yeah. Um, also, he talks about what he's been doing with a LIDAR camera, LIDAR which camera. I'd never heard of. Yeah. A LIDAR camera. I had never heard of that. But he's taking family portraits with it. And the results are really fascinating. They kind of look sculptural. It's just black and white um, prints or di digital prints, I guess, um, 
they look very surreal. They look a little bit like Web 2.0, a little bit old school. It, it, it very very interesting person. The way that he's thinking about art and uh, prints and photography in general. Yeah, some of the newest phones, including the iPhone 13, uh, and you know some of the Android phones have lidar sensors in them, and they've been used, um, you know, in part for VR because it it can track distance rather than just reflected light. Um, and that whole mm. realm of photogrammetry that we've talked about in, in past shows before is built on getting that LIDAR data, so that depth data. Um, I, I do think that in that sense, he, he's really trying to help us understand the boundaries and the potential limits of photography in the future. For me, you know, a lot of that stuff is kind of fringy because at the end, end of mm. the day, people just want to take photos of their dogs and their cats and their babies, yeah. you know, that's what we see like, getting memefied and, and whatnot. He, he alludes briefly to holograms and as a sci-fi mm-hmm. movie guy, like I do think that there's something to be said of when something appears three-dimensional to you in like your room, that that's going to be a game changer in terms of like a major paradigm shift. But to me, yeah. the grammatry stuff right now, the LIDAR stuff that he's doing or, you know, they're using 3D printing to make these 3D photos um, is a little bit too fringe for me to really consider it as like, OK, this is photography. Yeah. Now I hear that. Yeah. He's, he's talking about some pretty wild ideas. Yeah. It's, a, it's a cool piece. You know, again, like there was no impetus that I could tell for him to write the piece. It's more of a thought piece. And maybe it's something, you know, we're all sitting around uh, in COVID. Most of us are still working from home, except for people that have service jobs. And I think it's allowed people to really kind of think about what the heck are we doing? That's kind of how it felt mm. to me in reading it. We'll have a link to the, to the piece uh, on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. So go ahead and read it and let us know what you think. Alan, you DM'd me a link this week that I would add to my somewhat long and and extremely random list of things on the internet that make me feel sad. (laughs) (laughs) And and this particular random thing was a photo series on a pack of polar bears that have taken over an abandoned weather station on a small remote island in the Chukchi Sea. Photographer Dimitri Koch found the bears during the late summer of 2021, and the images are like a bit unsettling because it kind of looks like the bears are posing perfectly and welcoming you to their house. Yeah. Like, this is our house. We're looking through the window and we're on the porch welcoming you. And in that way, it almost looked kind of fake to me. Like, I had to really look at how like the light was falling and the way that the edges around the bears were. Cause I was like, are these photoshopped? Totally. <laughs> well, what was your take on these? I had the same sort of reaction. Like I was suspect, not, not necessarily because I thought it was a composite, but you know, there are some countries in Eastern Europe and of course, Russia, where you see these uh, uh, things of like the little girl bef- befriends the scary black bear and there's the dog walking next to the bear. And, you oh, know, it's God. clearly been habituated or Photoshopped to create these images. And there's a, right. there's a, a moral and ethical way that we take photos in the West or that a lot of people, a lot of wildlife photographers are saying, you know, don't bait the animals, don't tr- habituate them, etc. These photos mm. seem really off to me because they seemed a little bit too kind of humanish, you know, yeah. Polar bear out, out face out the window or two polar bears together kind of like in different window frames, et cetera. So yeah, totally agree. It seemed suspect. 
And then I went mm-hmm. down into the comment section, which is usually a bad idea. Right. <laughs> but on this particular article, people found that he had been using a drone. And they found like a three-minute oh. YouTube video that, that we'll link to on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com where you can see him flying around with his drone. And usually, you know, some wildlife are really like the drone sound stresses them out. But in this footage, mm-hmm. the bears seem like totally non, non-affected by the drone noise. So he was able to get very, very close and very, very low to the bears with the drone. I see. So do you think the drone like attracted them to look over directly at the drone? Because that's another part of this where you're like, what? Because the bears really are looking yeah, kind of straight at the camera. I'm straight at the sure. And, I, and again, I think that, you know, ethical wildlife photography would say you, you shouldn't get that close um, mm-hmm. because you are attracting their attention or you can create a stress response that may not be visible to humans, but their heart rate might be elevated, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know. I still have mixed feelings about the photo. I, this is the type of thing where because it was a, quote, long form article on Petapixel, I wish that Michael, who wrote the article, Michael Zhang, took a little bit more time to sort of explain how the photos were taken and delve a little bit into yeah. the ethics of this type of photography. Because this, this is the kind of thing that just travels on the Internet as like one offs with no explanation. And then everyone's mm-hmm. like, oh, look at the cute polar bears. Or, or, or like me, you for some reason have a visceral sad reaction. <laughs> right. Whatever the case why. was, I, you know, I think five to 10 years ago, I would have been like, wow, that's amazing. And now I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know about these photos. Well, yeah. And you know a lot about wildlife photography from, you know, looking at a lot of bird photos. Yeah. And I didn't even think of like the baiting situation. Yeah. yeah. Miami University has set up a professional headshot booth in their career center to help students professionally brand themselves. This is essentially like, yeah, a massive photo booth, digital photo booth, but like a little bit, looks a little bit bigger, looks a little bit brighter, like there might be some more space between you and the camera if you were to go in. And obviously this is super important to have a good headshot on your LinkedIn, on your little, you know, website, if kids are still doing that, I don't even know. (laughs) But it seems like a smart idea. But of course, I'm like, wait, that's a machine replacing (laughs) potentially a professional photographer that you could hire to get your photo. I have never heard good things about career centers. You know, I I don't know how it was at Emerson, (laughs) but at Yale, even today, people are like, if you're not going into iBanking or consulting, they're basically useless. You know, they're not just not geared for any sort of other career. So in that sense, I think this is a great idea to say, okay, we live in this society where your social media profile and your LinkedIn profile is really, really crucial in some cases to getting your name out there in the business community and how you're perceived. So in that sense, you know, a couple thousand dollars to to build this booth, I think is well spent. I think it shows that they're the school is really thinking about the future of their their, you know, soon to be alumni. And, and so I can't poo-poo the idea, especially when, you know, if you're a poor college student, being able to get a relatively professional photo done in a minute or two seems like a completely yeah. sensible idea. But Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But mm. <laughs> I will say, <laughs> you know, the distance to subject in a photo booth, it's like, it's short. 
And so that means the camera has to use a relatively wide angle lens, which means you're going to get facial feature exa exaggeration. You know, the nose is going to be a little bit bigger than it would be if you're using a telephoto lens, unless the software is also fixing that appearance. Oh, man. And, and I hope it is, because anybody with a speck of self-awareness will hate that. Yeah. I mean, and especially we all know what we think we should look like based on the selfie the selfies that we take right. with our iPhones, right. right? So if these print out and your nose is slightly bigger, <laughs> no, like they're not, you know, you're not going to like that. <laughs> the, you know, the lighting also is completely on axis of the camera and it's a single source. I mean, you can do wonderful things with a single source photo. So I don't want to poo poo that, uh, you know, off the bat, but that on axis lighting is going to not give you kind of a sculptural look. Maybe it's more of a Maybe it's more of a business look anyway, you know, ring light, shadowless. Maybe that's what you want, but I don't know. It it, it, it gives you a limited output by using uh, this type of photo booth. Totally acceptable for social yeah. media, but at some point, maybe hire a pro. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. When you have the budget, hire a pro. That said, Sarah, I haven't updated my personal headshot in years. <laughs> Part of that is the pandemic. <laughs> But I've also been using a photo that I've liked that that was taken like eight years ago. So oh my I'm as guilty God, as the next Alan. person. <laughs> totally. Totally. I feel like we need to have an expiration date on these things. It's so funny because like, to be honest, I totally used to be that like 20 something in the office that judged the higher ups when you could tell like, that's a photo from <laughs> right. like five to 10 years you don't ago. You like that anymore. But, yeah, exactly. But now I totally get it. And of course, the pandemic like has factored into this. But like, I'm using a headshot from 2018. See? Like, that was almost four years ago I now. Know, That's crazy. not okay. It's crazy. <laughs> you know, and people age. So you can only get away with it for so long before it becomes painfully right. obvious. Anyway, there's totally. a good congratulations to Miami University for doing something innovative. But also find out who's a really good corporate headshot photographer in your in your neighborhood. Yeah, I gotta say, also uh, this post on LinkedIn of theirs got sixteen thousand likes. That's some Damn. good PR. Stuff can go. I know yeah. stuff can go viral on LinkedIn. That's pretty cool. Finally, today winter means the surf is up in the northern hemisphere. Uh, large storms in the northern Pacific and Atlantic generate huge swells that turn into mega waves as they approach land. So it's prime season for surfers and therefore prime season for surf photographers. A lot of people watched HBO's 100-foot wave documentary. It was a four-part, four or five-part documentary um, that generated a lot of interest in Nazaré, Portugal, which has this underwater canyon that just funnels all the wave energy and generates 60-foot, 70-foot, 100, you know, the mythical 100-foot wave um, and this oh season was no exception to that. So there were 60 foot waves. There's a, a app and a website that I use to check the surf report, as we often do in Hawaii, called Surfline. And they had a gallery of what they said are XXXL Nazare photos. The opening Ooh. shot of this thing, just to give you a sense, is, you know, it's it looks like it's near sunset. There's a crowd of people on the cliffside watching this ginormous wave come in. And then there's just a ton of white water in the front. It's, it's a lovely, lovely photo. 
the one thing I'll say about gigantic waves, having observed them in person here in Hawaii for several years, it's really hard to get a sense of scale until you see like mm-hmm. a little body on that wave. And even then it's hard to appreciate because, you know, you're getting the most skilled surfers in the world surfing down these things. It's hard to get a sense of how big and dangerous and steep these waves are until you see them fall off the wave and then bounce on the water and then get pulled under the water for like a minute. And then a jet ski comes by to like Mm. retrieve them. But these images are totally amazing. We'll have a link to these on Photoshelter, our our blog at blog.photoshelter.com. Had you seen waves these big before, Sarah? Absolutely not. No, I was watching the video and I, I got like a secondhand adrenaline buzz just from watching them. Yeah. And, and you're totally right. The people, you, to get the scale of the waves, like you have to have the surfers out there on yeah. the water. And the video, photo, it's a little harder to tell. Video, a little bit easier to tell. Like, but they are going so fast, oh. these surfers. Do you have, I'm curious if you have any idea like how fast these surfers are going. I don't know how fast they're going. I will say that when you ride a wave this big, you need a huge board. So typically, I I don't know if you've ever looked at a surfboard before, but they're very light because they're foam, basically, um, with some, some, you know, essentially plastic uh, on top of it. These boards that they use to ride these waves, they add weight to it. So the boards are like 20 pounds because otherwise you wouldn't be able to stay on the wave. It's so... There's so much bumpiness and turbulence on that wave. I mean, they got to be going pretty fast, you know? Yeah, it it looks it. I'm like, is this sped up or like, is the wave coming through that fast? Another kind of scary part is seeing the jet skiers kind of weave in and out of the surfers. Oh, that would just terrify me. Well, here on Oahu on Saturday, the 22nd, we had a gigantic swell come in. Waimea is one of the big surf places on the North Shore of Oahu, and we had thirty foot, 25 to 30 foot waves there. I took my drone out. There were so many wow. photographers out there. Um, there were photographers in the water. There were photographers up on the cliffside and on the sand, and then there were tons of drones in the air. Uh, and the footage off of that day alone was also incredible. So, so Surfline had another incredible uh, a gallery of images there. All of the Pro famous pros were out there on that day. There's an incredible photo by uh, Sean Davy, uh, actually several that that he took uh, out on the water, just to get a sense of again the steepness of the waves and also just how many surfers were out there trying to catch these waves. It's, it's kind of nuts. It is. I got to say that the difference in the watercolor between the Hawaii photos and the Portugal uh, photos, yeah. it's so. There, there is such a difference. The Hawaii water is just like this crystal, beautiful <laughs> blue. Ugh, I could look at it all day. Which brings us to the last photo. I see a lot of surf photos because I'm out there taking photos and I'm consuming the photos. So it takes something pretty special for me to go, wow. But the team of Sophie Luca and Paul Carolides captured the surfer Kyleni, who also happens to be in that 100-foot wave documentary, at a beach called Peahi, also known as Jaws on Maui. Surf photography to me is serendipity and skill. You need the right light, you need the right wave, you need the right wind conditions, you need the right surfer in the right place, you know, at that decisive moment. And this particular photo, man, the, the, the white water and the sea spray blend in almost seamlessly with the clouds. There are two very distinct colors of blue, and you get a hint of the ridgeline that's visible off in the distance with a few tree silhouettes. Uh, Again, we'll have a link to this one on our blog at blog.photoshelter.com, but 
What an image. Well, that brings us to the end of another show. Thanks for listening. While you're here, hit that subscribe button, leave us a comment or a rating. You can always tweet at us at Photoshelter. We'd love to hear your feedback and your ideas for future shows. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Photoshelter is the online leader for photography websites and workflow tools. Archive, distribute, and sell your photos in a mobile-friendly, responsive website. Try one free for 14 days at photoshelter.com slash podcast. Then download one of our free educational guides at photoshelter.com slash resources.